There are four kinds of people in this world. Cretans, fools, morons, and lunatics. Cretans don't even talk. They sort of slobber and stumble. Fools are in great demand, especially on social occasions. They embarrass everyone, but provide material for conversation. Fools don't claim that cats bark, but they talk about cats when everyone else is talking about dogs. They offend all the rules of conversation, and when they really offend, they're magnificent. Morons never do the wrong things. They get their reasoning wrong, like the fellow who says that all dogs are pets, and all dogs bark, and cats are pets, too, therefore cats bark. Morons will occasionally say something that's right, but they say it for the wrong reason. A lunatic is easily recognized. He is a moron who doesn't know the ropes. The moron proves his thesis, he has logic, however twisted it may be. The lunatic, on the other hand, doesn't concern himself at all with logic. He works by short circuits. For him, everything proves everything else. The lunatic is all idee fix, and whatever he comes across confirms his lunacy. You can tell him by the liberty he takes with common sense, by his flashes of inspiration, and by the fact that sooner or later he brings up the Templars. There are lunatics who don't bring up the Templars, but those who do are the most insidious. At first they seem normal, then all of a sudden... Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Sunday, February 21st, 2016, and our month-long theme of contact inspired by the new season of X-Files continues. This morning, we will make contact with a galaxy far, far away and consider semiotics and mythologies, and we'll do so with writer and film critic A.S. Hamra. His recent essay discussing The Force Awakens in American culture was featured in the February 2016 issue of Harper's Magazine. And you can find some of his other work at N Plus One, where he is their film critic, The Baffler, Book Forum, and Harper's, where he is the new movie's columnist. In addition to his writing, he's also a brand semiotician for the television and consumer goods industry. For more information about his work, check out N Plus One or Harper's Magazine. The program is very pleased to be hosting him today. Welcome. How are you doing this morning? Great, thanks. Great to be here, Chuck. Thank you. Before we dig into any of the symbols or signifiers, let's start with a distinction that you raised when I contacted you. You noted that as far as myth goes, you're much more interested in the Roland Barthes sense of mythology than in what uh, Joseph Campbell was considered mythology. Could you explain the difference and tell us what semiotics is? Well, semiotics is the study of how things get to mean what they mean. It's the study of how signs create meaning in culture. And for Roland Barthes, myths are the, the stories that we tell ourselves or that are told by society to us in order to naturalize the world around us. So we live in a world of signs and meaning, uh, but most people do not think about the things around them. They just think that of them as natural. They think they've always, they've always been there. They have a fixed meaning. And they're not things they need to concern themselves with thinking about. They exist a priori. And uh, semiotics 
is, you know, studies how that comes to be and why that is and how it changes and how it means different things to different people. So then if our listeners aren't familiar with Roland Barthes, who, who was he? Roland Barthes was a French literary theorist and critic in uh, Paris in the post-World War II era. He wrote a book called Mythologies. It was a collection of newspaper columns that uh, became popular in the U.S. when it was first published here. He wrote many other books and was, you know, the leading proponent of this kind of post-structuralist way to look at literature in which texts are sign systems that can be studied. And he wrote the very interesting book about photography, too, that a lot of people read when they're in college. And uh, he died in 1980. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, what is that difference then between... A, the meaning of a sign that Joseph Campbell would say is mystical or something and, and just a cultural sign. Well, I'm not an expert on Joseph Campbell, but as I understand it, Joseph Campbell deals in Jungian archetypes mm -hmm. and uh, actual myths and the meaning structure of humanity, which he sees as uh, unchanging and consistent over time. So when we're talking about Star Wars, the things that Campbell talks about when he talks about heroes and their journeys become very important to that. And in fact, were part of what inspired George Lucas to make that the first films. Myth in the Barthesian sense is not about unchanging, unvarying things, but things that change over time and culture and have different relevancies at different times to different people. And that are often used by dominant groups to structure and oppress the lives of people who are not part of that group. And they do that by naturalizing those things. So everyone just thinks that they're true, whether they are or not. Huh. I mean, that's a very blunt way to put it. But you know, that's the difference for me. Okay, and so it's interesting because I read a little bit of, of Bart's, and what I realize is that he, and so it, this is interesting in the Cambulian sense, because so he, he was writing about the particular daily life that he experienced about movies and wrestling and that kind of thing, yeah. but he did it in such a way that the particular becomes universal on some level because he's talking about what is being signified by... The particular right but he is against universalizing because uh, you know these meanings shift and change over time so although he might find some universal story underpinning the things that he writes about when he writes about popular culture uh -huh. he's not kind of creating this this system that's going to last forever and be true for every human person going forward a writer like Bart and other people, I think, might see that as repressive and even fascistic huh. to assume that meaning doesn't change over time. And that's what I think of when I think of Joseph Campbell or Star Wars, that they're trying to create this unyielding type of meaning that never changes and is true for every person who experiences uh, certain works of art or popular culture. Well, so let's get into Star Wars just because it's so peculiar in that it is slowly becoming religion. 
Uh, yes, I think that Star Wars is the dominant religion of America today in some ways, especially for people of a certain generation. Uh, Gen X, I mean. If you were born at a certain time and you saw the first Star Wars movies as they came out in the late 70s and early 80s, then there's a chance that this is essentially your religion that's now being passed on to subsequent generations in, in a religious way. So a lot of people I know who uh, saw the films you know, in, when they first came out or in the 80s now have kids of their own. And I've noticed that one thing that they do is they kind of worry about, is it too soon to show my kids Star Wars? When can I show them Star Wars? How old do they have to be before I let them see this great and important thing? And, you know, this is a discussion that they have with their friends and their peers. And eventually they'll let their kids uh, see it. And, then, you know, it indoctrinates the kids into this, this religion, you know, or not. But the, it's become this, this uh, tradition, this, this thing that's passed on from generation to generation in that way, just, just as religion is. So it seems like once kids are getting to the point where they don't so much believe in Santa Claus anymore, then Star Wars becomes the next thing. And I think what's interesting about that uh, now with the new films is how that's been totally, more than ever, taken over by a corporate structure. So it really does have this unyielding, uh, enforced quality. And ABC Disney now owns Star Wars. And I think that they feel it's going to last forever. You know, this will be something that uh, kids and their parents always respond to in the exact same way, and they'll be able to make money off it forever. It's So I'm having a lot of different thoughts, but one of the things you mentioned in your essay is this series, I think it was a series of Walmart commercials, where there's almost this instruction of how to, you know, that you have the grandfather who's receiving these filmed montages of their child uh, elaborating yeah. to the grandchildren how you're supposed to do your lightsaber duel. Right, exactly. Those, those Walmart ads that were shown before Star Wars in movie theaters uh, and on the web, you can see them, and I, I, they might have been on TV, I'm not sure, are a really good example of this kind of generational transfer of you know, religious sentiment. Because in those films, the generation in the middle, which is Gen X, is directing the two, it's a father, he's directing his son and his daughter in recreating scenes from Return of the Jedi. Uh-huh. The lightsaber duel. And then, because he has, he has a, a Canon printer, he can print out photos of this and send them to his father, their grandfather, who I guess doesn't use the Internet. So he's showing the grandfather how he's instructed the kids to participate in this world of, of religious devotion. What's interesting, so you say ABC Disney now owns it, and they're going to... Because it's a corporate entity, they're going to milk it for all that it's worth. But so, like, in terms of meaning, in a simpler time, we had broadcast TV, right. and we had to just – you. It, the format kind of provided the meaning. So if they showed The Wizard of Oz once a year, it had meaning because it was this annual event – and, you know, it was always it, – it wasn't something that was 
they weren't going to do spin-offs forever. It was just the right. same thing over and over again. And that's kind of the beauty of what Star Wars was for me is that here's this unchanging thing that is a constant throughout my life, but the idea that now it's going to multiply and become a whole universe of different spin-off things is kind of a little scary to me. Well, it was already that when it first came out because part of uh, Lucas's marketing brilliance was the toys. Making the Star Wars toys was very important to telling that story and um, marrying it to the generation that first saw it. You know, to uh, understand Star Wars, you had to play with the toys. And because you could only see it in a movie theater, Star Wars came out before VHS was even prevalent. Um, you know, playing with the toys allows you to recreate the experience of the film. But the film was never like The Wizard of Oz, something that could not be changed. Lucas was already preparing himself to update the films as uh, different kinds of technologies became available. Something you can't really imagine, uh, you know, the people who own The Wizard of Oz doing. Which, to my generation, I think is sim somewhat sacrilegious. Well, as, you know, Lucas is kind of the god figure of the Star Wars world is kind of a controversial person because he keeps going back and messing with things that people have already begun to love and worship in different ways. Right. It's like messing with my childhood. Exactly. So why is he doing that? <laughs> I mean, I think that he, he lacks an understanding of what uh, the product meant to its original audience. You know, he comes from a different generation that received... He comes from a different generation than the one that received the product first. So he's a baby boomer, not a member of Gen X. So his idea of the world is different from the one uh, that the first viewers of the film uh, had and to some extent still have. George Lucas is interested in you know, the eternal, things that never change, things that will always be perfect. So for him, digital technology was great because the film would look the same every time it was shown. Whereas the film ages and scratches and fades. That doesn't happen with digital technology, which is infinitely repeatable and always the same. He comes from a generation that believes it's immortal. But he was making his product for a generation that, uh, you know, is all too mortal. Hmm. That has a very different experience of the world. So what about the next generation? So here we have... I, I mean, I don't even know who's receiving The Force Awakens, but in your piece you mention how it's almost like they need the millennials need to be taught a proper duality with Star Wars, whereas they're coming out of something a little more gray, post-Twilight, post-Hunger Games. Yes, and post-economic collapse. Um, I think that there is now this... So with Gen X, Gen X is very interested in... Uh, the lives of their children in a way that their parents were not interested in their lives. So Gen X is a generation that had bad parenting in which parents weren't really involved with their lives and uh, ignored them and left them alone. Which now we see uh, that Gen X as adults and parents are, are overly involved in their kids' lives. So that, like I said, they're very interested in figuring out when's the exact right moment to show their kids Star Wars, this thing that they loved. And in my neighborhood where I live, in Brooklyn, you see a lot of parents, you know, and this is kind of a, you know, a joke that everyone's already, 
you know, been exposed to, but you see a lot of Gen X parents with their kids and, you know, the father and the son who's six are both wearing Ramones t-shirts. Yeah. So, uh, Star Wars functions in this kind of generational transfer of knowledge that way. So I think that what's interesting is that the prequels that Lucas made himself, which were seen as uh, failures and even a kind of a disaster, are uh, more interesting to young to younger viewers than The Force Awakens is. Although it's hard to say that since The Force Awakens made, you know, a billion dollars very quickly, right? Yeah. A lot of people went to see it. But there's kind of a Gen X crowdsourced feeling to The Force Awakens, in which it's very programmatic and all the right buttons are being pushed. Yes. Yeah. Whereas in the prequels, uh, those films are not like that. Those films are clunky. They're all digital. They are about genocide and terrible things in ways that the new one is not. And I think those films may emerge as kind of more interesting to, you know, the next generation of viewers just because they're despised. You know, things that no one cares about become more interesting to subsequent generations. Huh. Well, I mean, do we dive into the the meanings of these movies? Because George Lucas was assembling them based on things that he liked from his his youth. You know, swashbuckling right. films, and then uh, oh, the, the Watchers or the Searchers, the John. The Searchers, right? The yeah. John Ford film from 1956. Yeah, and and so he's doing things that similar to what Tarantino does, where he's just taking the things that he loves and reassembling it in, in a in a way that's pleasing to him. Yeah, the the Star Wars is made out of all, all you know. I, I mentioned some of them in the piece that I wrote. You know, it's made up of David Lean and Akira Kurosawa yeah. and uh, Lenny Riefenstahl. You know, and things I didn't mention, like Flash Gordon. It's kind of this combination of Flash Gordon and Triumph of the Will, uh, with touches of David Lean and the Seven Samurai and so on. I think the difference is that when Tarantino does this stuff, to a certain extent, he's not hiding it. Yeah. You know, he wants you to participate in his world of reference. Whereas uh, when Lucas made Star Wars, it was adults who understood that about it, but not the original audience. Politically speaking, though, there's this melding, and you mentioned this in your piece, of firepower and innocence, which is so American. Well, one of the, one of the things that makes Star Wars such a successful object of veneration is the way that it tells us that we are good people. Right. So right. so when you watch Star Wars, you are always on the side of the rebels, not the not the Empire or the Alliance. You know, you see yourself as this part of this small band of uh, rebels, you know, fighting the Empire. Right. And, and in the original films, that was I think that was very generationally important. Now, the waters are muddied by uh, everything that's happened in you know in our in our shared history since then america is an empire in ways that you know george lucas couldn't really predict when he made the first film 
Although, you know, uh, you know, the film's response to Vietnam kind of is already in there. Uh, but Vietnam was a war that had been lost by the time the first Star Wars film came out. The world is very different now when The Force Awakens comes out. And America is the empire. So to see ourselves as these rebels fighting it is, is a strange position to put viewers in. Because what is the empire mean you know who who is the empire and and what what is our position right and then you open your piece in harper's with obama giving this you know speech about t terrorism and uh the san bernardino killings and then he goes off to the kennedy center t to honor george lucas right that's that same night which is it, it kind of makes your brain explode it bit. does, yeah, because Star Wars and many films are, are soft power items that are broadcast all over the world to tell audiences that America is full of good people, which is one of the reasons, not just for box office or generational considerations, that the films have to become more multicultural, more feminist, uh, kind, of, kind of nicer and more inclusive because they are soft power items that are going to be shown all over the world to create an impression of America that, you know, predisposes people toward liking it. So America is this uh, myth that is available for export more and more as it becomes out of reach for the people who actually live here. All right. So as far as artists go, and especially with mass consumer culture, is there a, an awareness of what's being messaged through the commodities? Well, I'm, I'm not sure who you mean. Is there a method? Is there a... Well, like, if you're, if you're a big corporation, your goal is to just sell The Force Awakens to make a lot of money. But, you know, at what... Is anyone... So, like, um, the movie Wally is coming to mind. Okay. And so here's this movie with a... What would you say? An environmental progressive message... But then it's still coming in the packaging of mass consumer culture, and it's creating a lot of waste as it's as, as it's going out and saying, "Don't be wasteful," you know. And then you go to the theater, and they give you the commemorative cup or the commemorative watch or whatever it is that comes with the. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Do they really do that anymore? That you get those kinds of things? I, I don't know about that. Going to the movies now is a lot different than it was when you know, Star Wars came out in the late 70s and the other films came out in the 80s. <clears throat> now it's very expensive compared to what it was like before. And, you know, the toys and other things are purchased far away from the movie theater, mm -hmm. online even, in ways that no one knew they would be able to be purchased when those kinds of things came out. So th those, a lot of waste is created. And uh, Star Wars especially is known for that, right? Because there's, there's Star Wars. Every, every product that exists exists in a Star Wars version, you know? Yeah. Um, but as to your question about the awareness of these huge multinational conglomerates, you know, there, there are many levels of awareness, right? So when a company like Pixar makes a movie, yes, they want to have a very positive, progressive message, that's helpful to people and makes them think and improves their lives and so on. So their ideological purpose is sometimes more apparent, you know, because it's a positive one. 
whereas uh, things like Star Wars are more insidious in hiding that. I don't think that anyone making the films is trying to do anything but make something that's positive, inclusive, fun for the whole family. But the corporations that control all this have very different agendas that uh, are about making lots and lots of money all over the world. That's why they exist. Mm -hmm. And they have this property that they own that they can do that with that has a lot of generational or cross-generational resonance. So Disney also owns Marvel now, right? The, the Marvel comics uh, have the same kind of thing for people who were young in the 70s and 80s now transferring that love to their, their kids through the medium of uh, films. You know, they own the Muppets also. So they're essentially going back and buying all these things that were very important to people in the 70s and 80s and finding ways to leverage that deep love for them in new ways that parents will transfer to their children. Do you think... I mean, so a religion is just... It's a story that people derive meaning from and believe in. Do we get to... I mean, what's the difference between Christianity and pop culture? Well, there are, there are a lot of similarities. They are, they are stories and myths that have lots of characters and families in them that we can use as models for our own lives. Uh, they have battles between good and evil and right and wrong. And then they have large corporate entities that become involved and take over these stories and own them and tell people that there is only one way to interpret them and that you must believe in a certain way in order to participate in, uh, you know, in the communality of the religion that, that brings you so much comfort. So the way that religions start <clears throat> excuse me, and then get co-opted is similar. And, uh, you know, the pageantry or, and beauty and spectacle of the, these, these items keeps people coming back for more. Okay, well then let's shift gears a little bit. Um, as I mentioned, part of the inspiration with this month's theme was with the, the X-Files coming back on TV. And for me, this is interesting in that X-Files was something that I participated in as a as a weekly broadcast thing and it was funny because it was the family gathered around the TV to watch the X-Files together and then we've definitely the media landscape is more fractured now but you can still participate it with it in the same way and you know so I did recently watch TV in a broadcast format with my wife and thought this is this is interesting um, yeah but I'm, I keep wondering, why now? Why are we doing Aliens now? Why, are, why is the X-Files back? Well, I think there's, there are several reasons for that. One is that shows and television shows and movies about uh, investigators who try to explain the paranormal, and tw Twin Peaks is another example of this. It, which become, is coming back, yeah. Which is coming back. Become very interesting to people at times of economic crisis and uncertainty. You know, a, a whole system collapses, stranding a lot of people economically, and they don't really understand why. So collectively, people turn to these kinds of shows that purport to explain supernatural, 
paranormal activities or conspiracies or complicated crimes that people can't figure out. You know, they look for uh, investigators who are going to explain to them what things really mean in those contexts. So Exiles comes back at a time that's kind of like uh, it was when it debuted. It was a time of economic uncertainty. There was a, you know, during the transition from George H.W. Bush to Bill Clinton, there was a recession. It's much smaller than the one in 2008 that's continuing to affect us now. But uh, I think uh, the exiles arose from that. The other thing that's going on is that um, as television fragments, and there's more and more competition and more and more shows being made, and it's harder to find them and they're shown in different ways, the uh, networks are looking for surefire things. So if they know something has a big cult following and maybe didn't, maybe kind of got cut off in its prime, I don't know if you can say that about the exiles, but a lot of things that's happened to. And they have a fan base that's unsatisfied. They can bring it back and they have a surefire hit because all the people that love it so much will watch it. So it's a way to get people to watch a medium like broadcast television that really nobody wants to watch anymore because no one wants to see ads. No. If they make it into an event, it's almost like a form of live television. Yeah. Have you been watching it? I haven't, no. No. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fun, but, uh, you know, the the... the part of me that's questioning you know what what is what are the signifiers representing that's that's the other portion to me where there is this strange darkness that occurred after September 11th 2001 where there are answers that people need you know to explain we want we want someone to be in charge of all the bad things that happen so it it's easier to sleep at night, I think. Mm. Potentially, I don't. We definitely want explanations, and people are very, people are not comfortable with official explanations anymore. So they seek various kinds of other explanations that range, as I'm sure you know, from completely lunatic, even you know, a word you used at the beginning of the show, to to interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. When did the X-Files go off the air? The original, the original It's hard to say because it seemed like the movies continued, and so there was this kind of continued narrative that I... Right. And then I never knew if there really was... It just seemed so fragmented to me. Like, if there was an overarching narrative that they were trying to say, I could never follow it, or I was mm. never interested enough to try and piece it together. Well, one, one thing that happens with series television is that if it's successful, it has to go on. So even, even if it's not being made as a weekly show anymore in a regular television season, it will go on in other ways. As you mentioned, like movies will be made, there'll be various other kinds of spinoffs. So part of the problem in creating meaning for television shows is that if they're successful, they often go on for too long, which begins to dilute the meaning and the brand. So just as George Lucas has things that he's embarrassed about now, like uh, that dilute the brand, like the cartoon show, mm -hmm. or the, cart the holiday special, 
I, I can't remember what it is now. I'm sorry. No, yeah, I, I, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, you know, these things happen that um, kind of make people stop caring, or that they love for you know ironic reasons. And the master controller of these brands, like George Lucas, is really interested in making sure people are on the, all on the same page about what it means, even though that's not possible. So if a show goes on for too long, that becomes harder and harder to do because the shows you know, inevitably jump the shark, as they say, um, causing the, the meaning to become diffuse. So that maybe that's what happened to Exiles and bringing it back as an attempt to consolidate the meaning. But like I say, I haven't seen it. Mm -hmm. um, I've only seen clips from it. You know, a lot of television I consume now is just in the form of, you know, uh, you know morning, semi-viral, um, you know, it's essentially a form of advertising now. Yeah. Yeah, in the introduction, I did uh, quote Umberto Eco, and he was talking about secret societies and conspiracies, and he died this past weekend. It's interesting because in that in that world, we also have Robert Langdon, you know, Dan Brown's character is a symbologist who's right. decon deconstructing and decoding meanings as well. How how does that world differ from what you would do in a in a commercial setting. Well, the Da Vinci Code is interested in exposing this vast conspiracy of the of the Catholic Church, right? Right. And um, you know, it's kind of an Indiana Jones, it's a slightly more cerebral or more religious Indiana Jones type of scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that differ from what I do? <sighs> I don't get to go around the world looking at, uh, you know, valuable artifacts uh, from from history. I have to stay home and look at valueless artifacts from the present. That's the main difference. Yeah. So in order to do the work that I do, sometimes I have to watch three hours of uh, antiperspirant deodorant commercials, or I have to watch every reality show that's currently on or something like that. So that's completely different than what's going on in the Da Vinci Code, which is portrayed as glamorous and exciting, and you know he's jetting around the world uh, looking at things and finding it about, out about stuff that no one knows about. In my, in my work, when I, you know, besides being a film critic and writer, I have to look at stuff that everyone knows about, or it, is, it seems like everyone knows about, and it seems like they all understand what it, what it means already. But do they? And I have to, well, you know, they don't a lot of the time. So it's my job to explain that to clients in a way that uh, will keep the audience interested in the shows. Yeah. And so it seems like when I was reading Bart, that's something where he was describing how different advertising actually destroys meaning. Yeah. And then oftentimes you're presented two pieces of the puzzle together, and I think Slavoj Zizek does a good job of, with like 
diet stuff or different things that complement each other for a problem that you didn't even know that you had? Well, yeah, the classic uh, mode of advertising is to create desire for things that people don't need, often by telling them they have a problem that wasn't a problem until advertising pinpointed it as a problem. You know, so that's that's like a traditional mode of advertising going back to the early 20th century. The, the you know what what the first theorists of advertising I don't think understood was that there would be television commercials that, as you mentioned, would subvert or destroy meaning on purpose almost to create you know this kind of confusion that seems much more free form than just creating a desire that didn't exist before and then fulfilling it or trying to fulfill it. And now what, what's going to happen, I think, is that the form of television advertising as we know it today won't even exist anymore. They're going to have to make you know, long-form branded content that's uh, of a much higher quality to keep people interested. And uh, that's going to change that's going to change how people receive and consume advertising messages. Okay, so based on our conversation so far, we, I mean, one of the things that I notice is that, and maybe this is how people always feel, but because of all these media or meaning-breaking advertisements, we're kind of in a moment where there isn't tons of deep-rooted meaning left in, in society. But I'm yeah. wondering if if we are so the things that do mean contain meaning for us are the you know this nostalgic things like Star Wars and the Muppets. I'm wondering if if we are going to end up destroying that as well. Well, that, that's an interesting question. Are we going to end up destroying that? The things that give us meaning at this point, which is not much. Yeah. I mean, you could say that that destruction of the meaning of those things has already begun, whatever meaning they had for you. That's already begun. So the, the ABC Muppets show that came out recently seemed to destroy the meaning of the Muppets in a way that the audience didn't really like very much. Because now uh, the consumer more than ever is in control of the brand meanings. I mean, this is kind of a you know, a, a well-known way to think about this stuff now. But the consumers are more in control of the brand meetings than the producers. So something like The Force Awakens is really taking, taking the meaning back from consumers, but in a way that pleases them because it seems as if they participated in making that meaning. Whereas less successful things like the Muppet TV show that was on, on, on in prime time recently don't seem successful in doing that. You know, the audience doesn't seem to have had a voice in it enough. Um, the, the difference maybe between religion and these things, we were talking about religion before, mm -hmm. is that the great world religions have lasted for thousands of years now. I mean, do you think that Star Wars is going to last for thousands of years? That's the intention of George Lucas, I think, and ABC Disney, that it will. But um, I think that things that are so generationally defined tend to you know, lose meaning over time. In the, in the um, piece I wrote for Harper's, I talked about that movie Reign of Fire, which has an X-Files connection, 
because it was directed and written, I think, by a guy who was a writer and director on The Exiles, in which we see Star Wars in this post-apocalyptic future in, in London, I guess it is in that film, being enacted as this play that is supposed to instruct kids on you know, good and evil and so on, in this church-like setting that's all candlelit. I mean, that's, that's, that's a dark future for Star Wars, that it will still have some kind of uh, resonance even after you can't even watch it anymore because it's a post-apocalyptic world in which there's no way to consume these things. They've had to go back to doing a theatrical presentation of it. So, yeah, I think that, I think that these meanings do get... I think that these meaning structures collapse over time. Uh, to me, a film that was more interesting this year than Star Wars, The Force Awakens, was Mad Max Fury Road. I thought that film, by by wedding itself more to the contemporary in a more obvious and apparent way. You know, it's about, it's about natural resources and water and oil and gun violence and, you know, uh, feminist emancipation. I thought it made it a much more exciting and interesting film than one that is swinging so hard for the mythic. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thanks for having me on. You bet. You've been listening to A.S. Hamra on 42 Minutes, a production of Syncbook Radio and Syncbook.com. You can find more information about his work at Harper's or Plus One. For more information about the Syncbook, our guests to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a Syncbook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the host. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and every point of the universe is a fixed point. All you have to do is hang the pendulum from it. Shyness is nice, and shyness can stop you from doing all the things in life you'd like to Shyness is nice and shyness can stop you From doing all the things in life you'd like to So if there's something you'd like to try If there's something you'd like to try Ask me, I won't say no, how could I? Coyness is nice and coyness can stop you from saying all the things in life you'd like to. So if there's something you'd like to try, if there's something you'd like to try, ask me, I won't say no, how could I? Spending warm summer days indoors, writing frightening Ask me, ask me, ask me Ask me, ask me, ask me Because if it's not love Then it's the bomb, the bomb, the bomb The bomb, the bomb, the bomb The bomb that will bring us together Nature is a 
Together. 